0: Hello and welcome to the Cities Reimagined Podcast, the show where we talk all kinds of things related to challenging the status quo in our cities and about alternative futures. I'm your voice of choice, Johannes Riegler. Today's show is all about urban futures and what it needs to Reimagine urban spaces and uh, work with urban futures as well as a method to reimagining cities. So, this is already episode number three of Cities Reimagined. Time really flies. And uh, what's new since the last episode? In the last episode, I told you that I was going to Madrid, the city where I lived in, some. Yeah, some 11 or 12, mm, might be 13 years ago, and I'm back now in Vienna. And I have to say I had a fantastic stay in Madrid. So when I stayed there in the city, it was actually 2011, so 12 years ago, I was at the end of my studies and, you know, I was on a tight budget. So the best I could afford was a room in a shared apartment with, I believe it was with like 9, 10 or 11 other people. And, you know, it was one of these apartments where some agency makes a lot of money by squeezing in a lot of people into a small space. And, unfortunately, I still remember all those cockroaches in this apartment vividly. And I spare you the details now, but I uh, what I did mostly, besides studying in Madrid, because my housing situation was so bad, was riding my skateboard downhill. In the side streets of uh, Salamanca, towards Atocha station at night, and I took the subway back, and you know nobody, not even the police, seemed to care at that time if you or if somebody rides their skateboard on a four-lane street at night. So that was that was really um, a very vivid memory. What I did mostly besides, yeah, of course, studying and riding my skateboard in Madrid back then was uh, going for a run or going for runs in Retiro Park. And I did that a lot, like a lot. So it was nice now that I also had the chance to do that again. And it's really funny when you come back to a place and you remember pits and pieces, some of these things you forget. Um, I had a really nice time now also... Running uh, in Retiro Park now. So I was in Madrid with my partner Mariah, who was working now for a couple of weeks in the city. Um, if you ever have the chance to visit Madrid, do it. Go to the amazing museums like the Prado and the Reina Sofia, which, you know, they also cover a lot of, or Reina Sofia especially, they cover a lot of urban related things. And it's uh, highly recommended. And also don't forget to drink a lot of coffee they have amazing coffee places there too i'm back in vienna now for a couple of days before heading out on another trip to another s- to the other side of europe really to helsinki i was invited to go there for a workshop by a european project called already which deals with yeah transforming agriculture and yeah you might wonder huh, agriculture is, is 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 why agriculture for this guy yeah it's not really much urban stuff on first side, but I got invo- invited because um, the colleagues there are preparing a new research and innovation initiatives on agri ecology with very participatory and co creative methods and approaches. And since I worked a lot on conceptualizing these experimental approaches uh, for research and innovation and living labs and so on. Um, actually, with today's guest, Jonas Bülund, I, w- I was invited to come over to Helsinki. And I really hope that I find some time to get some record shopping in as well, because Finland or Helsinki has such a interesting music scene, alternative music scene and some great record shops so I was there two times and both of the times I, I came back with a full bag of vinyl records so I really hope I find some time to do that if you're into this kind of stuff you should definitely check out the releases on Swart Records from Finland and also Hex Vessel a band from Finland uh, has a new record out which you should definitely check out but enough about this week's monologue, really. Let's get to this week's conversation. My guests on Cities Reimagined today are Jonas Bülund and Josephine Rangel, both living in or around Stockholm. I know them both from my work with or in JPI urban Europe and driving urban transitions. Josephine is a senior research officer at Pharma's a Swedish research funding agency. And with Josephine, I worked on organizing one workshop on radically regenerative urban public spaces. And I was so impressed by her knowledge and her perspectives on futures. And uh, yeah, take note of the plural there. It's not future, it's futures. And about her work on future studies. So I thought that it would be a perfect fit to sketch out the topic of reimagining cities with her on the podcast. Jonas is an anthropologist, he runs Urbanalys, and he is a researcher at the KTH, the Royal Institute of Technology. I worked with him very closely for some eight or nine or ten years, and although we didn't share an office, obviously, because he's based in Sweden, I'm really enjoying thinking back to all the experiences we had together over the years, and he became a very good friend as well, so we... Together we had the chance to go on many, yeah, many unbelievable work-related missions and adventures and trips together throughout Europe. We've been to Rio Rio de Janeiro, um, to Beijing, but also places where, as somebody living in Europe, we rarely have the chance to go, such as Addis Ababa in Ethiopia or Durban in South Africa. The talk with Jonas and Josephine was actually... The first one I ever recorded for Cities Reimagined back in July. I invited them to have a chat about what does it mean to reimagine cities and to challenge conventional paradigms and envision alternative futures in a podcast. And I invited both of them to be also my, yeah, let's say, mini sounding board of the show. So two people to discuss and uh, reflect the content of the episode, see what was specific. Uh, what was especially interesting and new, and uh, identify the topics for the future of the podcast. So you might be able to hear them again on CDs reimagined later on again from time to time. And I hope to have them again on the very last show of the season one to reflect what has been said and uh, what are the outcomes of this podcast. But after the recording, I thought uh, our conversation would be better placed in the middle of season one to set the ground for a more theoretical and deeper discussion on urban futures urban utopias and also dystopias and so on so that's why you had to wait two episodes to get to jonas and uh, josephine so that was a very long introduction to the show apologies for that but here finally is my talk with jonas and uh, josephine hi josephine and hi jonas Great to have you on the show.
1: Thank you, Johannes. Great to be here.
2: Thanks. Yeah, really good to be here. I'm I'm writing as I'm saying this, sorry.
0: Yeah, that's okay. I'm very happy to have you two today on Cities Reimagined because I know that uh, the two of you Work on questions on reimagining cities and reimagining urban futures a lot. and it's great to have you on the show. and I would be very interesting to not only discuss today the topic with you but also come back later after the first season and later on again to see what have we learned, what is open, uh, what topics and issues should we take into account for the next season? and so on. So it's great to have you today. Great. Excellent. Yes, are we done? We are done. Thank you so much for today. <laughs>
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Exactly. No, but then, uh, <laughs> good talk. I don't think it's that easy, or what? <laughs> so, I was wondering since we never talked about it, how did you develop this interest in cities? Did you always grow up, or did you always live in cities? Did you grow up in cities? How did that come about?
1: I was I was born in a city, uh in, in Stockholm to be to be more uh precise. I but then before before I turned 1, we moved uh to a very rural part of Sweden uh because my parents I uh, wanted to get away from uh from the big city life. Uh so they uh, They managed to rent uh, a very small house uh, in the middle of nowhere. And uh, there I grew up together with two of my younger sisters. uh, Being able to roam quite freely in in the large forests and uh, hanging out with a lot of farm animals.
0: Growing up with farm animals actually sounds like a pretty nice upbringing but how did you come back to the city then
1: I well that's that's not as as a rosy story i the reason for why we moved back to uh to stockholm is because my parents separated and uh, then it was easier for them to live closer to my grandparents who who lived in stockholm at that time Uh, So until the age of six or so, I I lived in a very rural part of Sweden. And from six years and onwards, I have lived in different suburbs to Stockholm. So never living in the inner city proper, uh, but in different types of, of suburbia.
0: How about you, Jonas?
2: I wouldn't say I was born in a city. I was born in an urban area, context kind of. Per definition, well, yeah, suburban north of Stockholm, or in that corridor between Stockholm and Orlanda, the airport of Stockholm. Um so I never I never saw of Stockholm as a city, but it was just, yeah, it's kind of city-ness, it's urban somehow. Right. Uh, and that's that's where I grew up. Um I always I was always surprised. I was never kind of our family wasn't really taking trips around in Sweden um when I was a kid so in a later age whenever I got to other kind of urban areas in Sweden I thought oh but it's so small. It's like where's and where's all the dirt? Where's all the um you know the kind of the, the urban stuff, the the, the sleaziness, almost. But you know, I, I I was always surprised how neat the little cities were, <laughs> very well tidy and so on. So I thought, for me, okay, Stockholm. It's not a big city. It's just kind of an urban situation. It's not very big, uh, but you also realize that that's in the Nordic countries. That's kind of the largest it is, or the dense, most dense there is. So that's very. I, I have a kind of an ambivalent thing with Stockholm, but also with growing up in Stockholm or in the context of Stockholm, but also with urban for that matter. And I've also been living out in the countryside for the last 10 years or so. So that's also a kind of a very much of a counterpoint for me, always doing research or or. For <laughs> with our work, Johannes is doing kind of programming uh, on urban sustainable urban development.
0: So, yeah. So is this also what gave you the inspiration for your work and the focus on urban areas? This this kind of personal history does did that lead you to where you are today? Maybe
2: maybe the influences were also kind of in. Maybe that both my parents have been in a kind of a middle class working, uh, thinking a lot about their environments and so on. They didn't do the green wave, as we call it here in the 70s, moving out in the countryside because they came from the countryside (laughs) because of their work to the the big city, so to speak, or the urban setting, whatever they could afford. Right. But they were kind of always talking about architectural stuff or how things were hanging together. I I think they were actually teaching me to be kind of an environmental hacker. They were also thinking about politics a lot or talking a lot of politics.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I, I think that that's super, super interesting to hear, Jonas. And and hearing you talk about your... uh, how you grew up, uh, I realized that maybe we have done somewhat opposite opposite journeys because yeah. my parents were like the last ripple of the green wave during the 1970s, uh, moving moving from Stockholm to Småland in, in the southern part of Sweden uh, because they wanted to get away from the big city. They wanted more self-sufficiency. Uh, they specifically wanted to get away from any nuclear power plants. Uh, which I don't know why, but it was a big issue for them. Um, so that is why I grew up in a very, very rural setting. We had one neighbor uh, who had a goat, which was like outside the family. I think the living creature I hanged out the most with, uh, this goat. Uh, and also in contrast to you, we traveled quite a lot uh when i was a child but always in sweden uh so i have seen quite many different swedish cities i but rarely been to like the inner city parts of stockholm as a child so that was something i started to explore as a teenager like this the type of the type of city-ness, as you expressed it, that I think many people think of uh, when you talk about cities or hear about cities, it's these like inner city, uh, denser type of morphologies or like the ways the way the environment is being planned. Uh, and I think my parents were also quite engaged in society. I. A lot of discussions about politics. I, uh, but I didn't start thinking about cities. uh with question marks, like what are they? What do they mean? I, uh, how can they be designed? I, uh, I didn't even realize that cities were designed. I until I got my first job as an uh, information officer in an area in Stockholm called Hammarby Sjastad which was supposed to be one of the spearhead projects for urban sustainability uh, in Sweden. And then, and there, I realized that, wait a minute, so I'm sounding super naive now, I know, uh, but I was, wait a minute, someone has actually thought about how this area and then probably also other areas uh, is is to look like and, and function. And this is actually super important in relation to sustainability and before that i'm tra- i'm trained as a biologist so i didn't have any prior knowledge about urban planning or urban design or architecture or sociology or all these others like perspectives that i have uh dipped my toes in uh since then so so for me this was like a big revelation in my mid-20s wait a minute cities cities don't just pop up they are made
0: So I grew up in a smaller city called Klagenfurt in the very south of Austria, near to the border to Italy and Slovenia, or not far from there. I grew up in a very central part of the city, so it's like 10, 15 minutes walk to the city center, which is like an old town, very very pretty and very very picturesque. At least the old town, the rest not so much, I would say. Um, But, you know, the... The really the thing that triggered my interest in her areas were the trips to London, which I had um, as a teenager. So my my mom was a was an English teacher, and I had the chance to to jump on a couple of uh, trips she did with her with the pupils to to England or to London, to the south of of England and London, and I. These trips really, really coined me in one way and, and triggered this interest in cities. So I, w- when I was there for the first time, I thought like, oh my God, this is really great. It's so messy. There's graffiti everywhere. It's so interesting. It's so different from my small town. I don't know what's going on, but I absolutely love it. And at the same time, while... Living in Klangford, I also still had this kind of rural connection since we owned a farm or inherited a farm, which um, part of the land was leased out to to a local farmer. But there was a 300-year-old house, which I or we had to take care of, which was a lot of work. So as a kid... It was great to be there. You know, it's an outdoor playground, and you can you can run around, and there's there's trees to climb, and there's there's always an adventure around the corner. But then, due to family history, this kind of changed, and I had to to work there a lot, and and come to the place uh, regularly to to mow the lawn and so on. So it became more a burden, although being in this very pi- picturesque uh, mountain area. It was on, on 1,200 meter altitude. In the meantime, we sold it. But yeah, this, this these were the kind of life points where I really thought, oh, urban areas, that's great. Um, starting with the trips to London and these bigger, bigger cities, also like Vienna, to see what is going on. They're not understanding it fully, but just finding it extremely interesting.
2: So, so there is one thing about uh, where one grows up, or at least perhaps us three, where we grew up and where we had those kind of points in our development. Is perhaps wrong, but just just how we live, and then suddenly we have these turns where we think, oh, but that what well, that's something I thought was. Like, I took this for granted, that this is the way how life is, and then suddenly you have this, well, no, 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 maybe it could be this way instead,
1: right?
0: I think so, yeah. Because you just learn, you know, I think when you grow up, you somehow think life is the same for everybody in different places, maybe. You know, it's the same experience, unless you experience it yourself.
2: yeah that's a good I think that's a good point I it's sometimes I, I think about those with with a very difficult word ontology right that you have depending on how it comes about but you can have these kinds of ontological traumas or shocks which can be constructive and widen your horizon or it can just scare you into you know go under a blanket and cry can you break that down a little bit to make it more understandable? Yeah, I'm not sure. No, I was I was thinking about this, of course, from a very academic point of view, uh, but I heard it in your stories as well, these kinds of small aha uh, uh-huh moments where you suddenly understanding something. It's not just understanding how something works like in an engineering sense, like, aha, uh-huh, oh, that's a surprise, but rather more existential more like oh but the world wasn't really what i thought it was
0: yeah. i think that links very well with with your work josephine right so you work a lot on on futures and uh more precisely on how to get there how does that resonate with you
1: yeah, I was I was uh, making notes so uh, quickly, so I can't even read what I wrote down when when you spoke, Jonas. I uh, so I I think that while like ontology is a super difficult concept for many people, I think to grasp. Uh, I I think that I uh, when you talk about it in in terms of of sense making, so you have your ways of making sense of the world uh, and, you know, how it works, again, not in the engineering way, uh, but in a more basic way. And then you're exposed to something new. It could be an environment. It could be a situation. It could be a relation or a combination of these that challenges uh, your sense-making frames, so to speak, uh, in a way that forces you to, and here I will use another concept uh, that I first stumbled upon in an article by uh, Professor John Robinson, who has done a lot of future study stuff. He talks about unlearning and relearning. And it's something with some some types of exposures uh, that lead you to a radical unlearning, because you realize that okay, the way I have made sense of the world, these situations, these relations, uh, the scope of action uh, before doesn't really hold true. And then you always have, when you have unlearned, you always have the possibility to to relearn uh, if you take that possibility. Uh, Often, however, uh, we are so threatened by this exposure, by this unlearning. So rather than staying, uh, staying with the trouble, uh, to quote another of my favorite uh, scholars, uh, Donna Haraway, uh, rather than staying with the trouble and learning something new, we close it down. Uh, we look away. Uh, so getting back to your question then, Johannes, about about future studies or, or foresight and why I think that is so i uh, relevant and and engaging is because through creating images of possible or desirable futures you can sometimes create this kind of exposure that destabilizes people's understandings of what is possible or what is desirable i and i think that this destabilization uh, is key to start doing things differently. So getting exposed to other ways of, of, of seeing uh, futures, but also presents. I think that is one, one key aspect to, to learning to do things differently, which, as you said, Jonas, is essential if we are going to move in the direction of a more sustainable and just society.
0: Can you be a bit more precise on what could be an exposure to futures? That sounds very abstract.
1: Yeah, I guess it is. Uh, so so futures, uh, since they don't exist, according to like a Western and secular line of thought, the future does not exist apart from uh, our imaginations about the future, which can be articulated and expressed and shared in different ways. Uh, so the future is abstract, uh, but being exposed to a future, uh, it could uh, it could mean uh, reading the latest IPCC reports and taking part of uh, the different climate change scenarios and their potential impacts for the planet, for biodiversity, for for humanity, uh, etc. That is one example. Uh, it could be. Uh, Watching one of one of the many uh, apocalyptic movies or TV series that are out there today, I uh, and realizing that well, actually society or things aren't as as stable as I believe them to be. Sometimes that causes a uh, like reactionary impulse rather than you know staying with the trouble and doing good things. But that's that's another question. I. Uh, it could also be going to an exhibition where artists have uh, created uh, representations of possible futures. So thinking about what this future could look like and trying to translate that, for instance, into uh, a coffee maker uh, or a living quarter or, or something else tangible and recognizable from, from your everyday life.
2: I remember as a kid, I was perhaps watching too many of the films that my parents had, the comics that my sister had, who's ten years older, so she had a lot of kind of grown-up comics about not very pleasant uh, human futures, <laughs> and I, I kept I kept thinking, oh, but oh, so the future uh, humans aren't that really not very very nice species, right? We're not that very good. There's no luck and future so i didn't have that kind of there weren't anything that was kind of a good quality happy future right that was either almost ridiculous or it was you know um the the happy stories were always in the present somehow uh i I would blame the system society etc for having the happy happy stories in the present and dystopian stories in the future right so but but i do think and uh, perhaps that's part of the genre perhaps science fiction it's also a way of trying to mirror what is happening at present but just with a bit of a different stage some science fiction actually tries to Uh, imagine what could be and what could be different and and that's uh, I think I haven't found much of it but for example like I have to look here in my notes Kim Stanley Robinson and New York 2140 is one of these or his books in general that's the way he seems to be working I I guess Ursula Le Guin as well Uh, they are really trying to figure out how life could be differently Uh, And not just uh, using tech or environments, different types of environments as a kind of a stage for showing what problems we have today. So in that sense, yes, I do believe in imaginations making or, or letting us be able to talk about what is desirable or not in terms of where we want to go. I guess... This is perhaps a very Western <laughs> a eurocentric Western way of talking about it of, of making these kinds of dialogues. I guess to my mind, other cultures have different genres, different ways of doing exactly these kinds of discussions or you know, having these debates on where do we where do we want to go, right? Because this is the, I mean, very much at the core a political issue, right? Where do we want to go? And how do we
0: do it? To me, it sounds like that we are actually in this dystopian kind of situation, which you just described from your childhood books at the moment, or increasingly getting there. But we somehow require science fiction to uh, broaden the understanding or broaden the perspective on how to get away from that and paint a more positive, more um, desirable future towards which we can work on. So, but of course, it's it seems like it's much easier in many ways to to focus on the dystopian part in media because you you get more clicks if you, you know, if you if you say, oh my god, the world is going down, um, or it might also be in in fiction and science fiction writing that this is might attract more. Um, attention than, than some positive image
2: yeah and, and I think getting back to something that was in your question that I probably also uh, managed to displace was uh, the thing about complexity and hyper complexity because a lot of uh, let's say when we're thinking about future human societies and perhaps in science fictions it's about interhuman relations between humans it's it's also kind of a big thing it's like soap opera suddenly whereas the really tricky issue is sometimes to make it plausible or perhaps so-called realistic is that oh you need to have these strange uh um Uh, relationships with a lot of other things. And that makes it very complex in order to write a simple narrative, a story that kind of illuminates how the world is. And I mean, that's not easy. It's not easy even doing today (laughs) for society,
1: right? In policymaking, uh, time or rather futures have collapsed into uh, two ways in which policy deals with futures. It's like the super near future next month, next year, Uh, and then it's the super distant future, like in 2060, and there isn't really any policy action uh, concentrating on the span between uh, like two years or 50 years, which is exactly the time span we need to direct our attention to if we are to uh, deal with the multiple crises and, and challenges in a way that... Uh, that uh, is to the benefit of of the planet and humanity, uh, including all humans, not only the already well-off.
2: So I guess that, I mean, that to me sounds also like what a lot of sports coaches do when they, they try to keep their athletes. Uh, don't just think about that big thing you're going to win uh, in 40 years. And not just about how bad you feel tonight or tomorrow, right? But take you know, you know, the small steps, the kind of phases. Oh, you have you set little goals along the way and so on, right? Is that what we should be doing? Listening more to our sports coaches?
1: Yeah, maybe. I I, I love I love thinking about futures and sustainable development through sports coaching. I think that opens up new avenues, at least in my mind. <laughs>
0: I think you touch up on very very interesting parts which I also would love to to cover on the on the podcast. I didn't think about the sports codes on the show but I thought about other actors which somehow have a perspective um, I wouldn't say stake but a perspective on reimagining cities and reimagining doing things differently and challenging the status quo or the paradigms which are out there.
1: If we tie this conversation back to like the question of the urban and and urban development, I think that urban planning and design and architecture are practices where you historically can see very clear uh, like utopian impulses or utopian ideas uh, driving the way urban areas but also specific buildings and specific interior designs, uh, how they are being developed. And uh, I think that to some extent, you can also see that in in contemporary urban planning and architecture, where uh, practitioners uh, are trying to translate ideas of sustainability or ideas of the good life, ideas of the attractive neighborhood, like whatever uh into specific choices of shapes, materials, colors and how these relate to each other. So so maybe I urban planning and design and architecture and landscape architecture too, I think is one example of of a practice that actually manages to to sit in this like in between in between the futures of, of tomorrow or, or next year and the futures of 50 or 100 years
2: that's one thing what we're seeing in a lot of our urban areas is a, is a kind of a uh, not a melting pot but a lot of conflicting ideas from different times and different <laughs> different types of uh, political situations of ideas of how we are supposed to live as humans and that's maybe also what is happening a lot and something that we need to work with rather than again trying to oh but if we're just pure to this one ideal then we Mm. then we can shape a good future and i think that's I mean, partly we need to work with it because a lot of all these concrete, these houses, these buildings, all of these highways and all of these very perhaps badly planned kindergarten playgrounds or whatever you have, um, they are also a bit, as as Annie Comer's um, scholar in, in the Netherlands said, they're obdurate matter, right? A lot. Sometimes it's actually easier to change metaphors than to change a house, kind of, to rebuild a house. It's 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 a lot more difficult, and that's what you have in a lot of these different types of urban situations. Uh, um, and and it's not trying to bring us down, but rather I'm thinking about how we can work with it and how we can have metaphors that works with this, rather than taking the shortcut saying, well, if we would just do this instead. that's that's what i sadly feel a lot about let's say environmentalist positive discourse is just taking that shortcut say but if we just did it another way yeah but you'd still need to work with what we can't really unlearn in terms of how our houses are built today Mm. so that's just a challenge I'm, i'm not saying that it can't be done but i'm i think i would be looking for metaphors or ways to to think, to talk about, and also to do in your in in this series, Johannes. Uh, Very good. I mean... think th- I think that's what we really need, and I think that there is a lot going on out there. Without saying any examples, just saying that there is a kind of a bubbling landscape of a lot of things being tried
0: out. So humankind is in a very decisive moment in time, right? So we have the biodiversity crisis, the climate crisis. We have a lot of other effects um, coming in strongly at the moment, with extreme weather events, extreme heat events, floodings, wildfires, what have you. How do we act up on this responsibility or this this fact that we urgently need to change human practices in order to? Um, yeah, to allow humankind and also other species to thrive in the future on this planet.
1: That's a big question, right? Uh, <laughs> and I, so I, I think that there are, of course, many different ways of of uh, responding to this question, but one, one, one way of doing cities that I think needs to stop, is I. Uh, the construction of very dense neighborhoods or the densification of already existing neighborhoods. And this is primarily from a resilience point of view. If we are to to manage our cities in a way that will make them uh, uh, resilient also for a climate changed future, uh, we are way beyond the point where we can avoid climate change. Uh, We have to Start planning now for how to live with climate change. Then these very dense areas with a lot of uh, hard surfaces—they—they uh, they will not be nice places to live in uh, a couple of years from now. So that's one like super concrete thing I uh, that that I come to think of.
2: Yeah, I, I would agree to that. Uh, having, I mean, having different. Um... <laughs> new ways of of uh, understanding what urban could be i guess that's one point but on the other hand what what is acutely perhaps required is um stop a lot of private car use stop a lot of highways being built because that also has very long time effects on what is possible to do in terms of densities etc Right? Because we humans we we like to get around a lot. We need to get around. we need to get around for work, we need to get around for the and maybe if we can do this by walking alone, that's probably very good for us in terms of health. So we think about public health, but a lot of how our cities are actually planned isn't by the architectural housing units. It's more along the lines of so, how many cars can we get there, <laughs> or not, or maybe public transport. But it seems like there there is a kind of a dominance in many of the northern, I mean north, in terms of Europe, North America, that, that you uh, you kind of you have the priority of the private use car. So that that's a big problem. Mm i would say but but i would also but what along with that i also think that um um if if we remember that climate change isn't about it just getting warmer it's rather about everything becoming a lot more unpredictable a lot more maybe warm and cold at the same time a lot more turbulent weather probably a lot more turbulent political issues so uh If we are to deal with that, we probably need, and this is a big jump, if we're thinking about urbanisms or kind of the the urban part of this future where everything is a lot more uncertain, uh, maybe we need, uh, as Ejan talked about it, places that aren't fail-safe, because we've learned that as soon as we try to build fail-safe cities, According to any kind of ideal we have, you usually end up somewhere else and it's not very good usually. <laughs> That's why I love study planning because nothing ever gets done as it was planned. Um, but maybe as Ahern talks about, we need uh, uh, what's it called places, uh, safe places to fail, right things with maybe resilience could be one way of talking about it i'm not too comfortable with that notion um it tends to be difficult but but just places where we as humans but also other non-human organisms as well as materials can also fail a bit and it's not the whole world right that's probably what we need if things are going to bit be a lot more uncertain, there will be a lot more crises, etc. Right? We don't need fragile spaces.
0: And I'm now very much influenced by a short documentary which I saw this morning over breakfast. It was a documentary about Detroit, about how, um, how the car industry left the city which caused a huge decline in the city. But it was not about that. It was not about this uh, ruined porn or this urban... Uh, um, exploration but it was more about the people living there right now and how, uh, what yeah. developed a- after that so detroit is a city which um, is partly still in ruins uh with um houses being burned down for insurances and so on but you can see what this documentary very uh showed very well is the creativity which came out of that on different levels not on from a from a state level or from a from a city level but from people living there so there are um, Detroit is also now known as probably a labo- laboratory for urban agriculture and uh, growing food. Uh, so they showed that, but also other businesses which established around that, for example, providing the right soil for these kind of, um, yeah, for these community gardens. So they worked together with the zoo where they got giraffe poop to produce the best soil for the for the for the agriculture. It was it was just very um interesting to see this creativity for reimagining the city actually, where also from a very different perspective from what we talked about just now, but from skateboarders who I don't know how um take tons of cement into old warehouses and build their the skate park they want. Um so what are your thoughts on that on on these kind of Um, this kind of creativity coming from what you could call a failed city um, to reimagine the future of of an urban area or of this, this particular case?
2: I don't know. Maybe there is something about this where perhaps what I will also, what I hope to hear, maybe what I will try to listen for in this podcast series is that, yes, of course, there's a lot of creativity when usually when people, but let's say when ecosystems try to figure out how to move on. That's it's not a big thing. The, the problem is that what I've seen so far mostly in policy, especially when it comes to urban development, is that there is a sense that, well, there's there's one future. There is there is one way, or um unfortunately I see that in a lot of environmentalism as well. Like one key component is always um engaging more with nature for example, which I think it's good it's probably very good for us or for some of us at least uh, but but what you say and what I think Detroit is from being a shrinking city and perhaps I wouldn't say a failed city but a shrinking city it was and that was kind of a panic um, until realizing well maybe this, Lesser density, as Josephine you were talking about, uh, is perhaps also something some some actors started thinking about how to do it. What I also hear is that it's not just one type of way of life that is being experimented. There are many different ways of doing things together, and I think that's perhaps a key. That's always that's also very, very tricky for policy, always. I, I think most, at least European policy hates that. They want everyone to be more or less doing the same thing. Uh that's perhaps also what we get from a lot of the mass media or Instagram and such, right? We 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 should probably aspire to do more or less the same thing because that's that's easier for everyone to sell products and so on, <laughs> to make economies work. Uh, we look more like Excel sheets that way so so what Detroit perhaps shows is is um safe to fail yes but also the kind of not multitude but yes lots of different ways of trying that and it will be it will be messy but we may need to be able to work with that we may need to be able to imagine an even messier urban future rather than. <laughs> a more clear-cut kind of uh, evtopian, utopian future, right?
1: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Uh, and I And th- I think that uh, the Detroit example uh, brings to my mind several things. Uh, one is, and now I'm going a bit theoretical, utopianist scholar called Ruth Levitas, uh, she talks about uh, the importance or the potential in interstitial spaces. Interstitial meaning in between. So she talks about that in interstitial spaces or interstitial practices. Uh, you can always find alternatives to uh, to the commonplace way of doing things, or or to the regime, or uh the dominating system and i think that what detroit shows is that that there were probably like urban urban farming guerrilla gardener movements etc in detroit even before this crisis happened but what happened then during the crisis and after the crisis was that there was suddenly uh more space for these up to then fringe practices uh, to develop and to become more mainstreamed. And I think that this points to on importance in maintaining a uh, diversity of ways of doing, uh, diversity of ways of using, uh, diversity of, of ways of relating and meeting uh, in not only urban spaces, of course, but perhaps particularly there because again, the future will bring about surprises. We can't know now what types of uh, competences, skills, spaces, uh, resources, etc., will be needed uh, when these surprises uh, materialize. I and I don't know if, have either of you tried to turn a lawn into a meadow? No. No? Okay. So I, I have tried to turn a lawn where I have my summer house uh, into a meadow and a lawn is characterized by being a monoculture. It's usually one type of grass. A meadow is characterized by having lots of different uh, species uh, but of grass, but also wild wildflowers. Uh So I started uh, sprinkling out seeds for different types of wildflowers into my lawn, thinking that that would eventually turn my lawn into a meadow, my monoculture into something biodiverse. After a couple of years, nothing had happened. My lawn looked the same. It was still a monoculture. And then then I, I asked some experts on how to do this. Uh, And they told me that in order to to transform a lawn into a meadow, you need to start by removing the lawn. Because otherwise, the grass that is already there uh, will suffocate. It won't give any space for these wildflowers uh, to emerge uh, or to produce seeds. Uh, And I think that in a way, this speaks to, so now we are back at the metaphors, this speaks to... Uh, a way of of managing or a way of of stewardship, perhaps, for urban areas that sometimes you need to remove things in order for other things to to be able to to thrive. Uh, and in Detroit, no one like removed things purposely in order to create possibilities for this gardening uh, uh, practices, but things were removed and other things emerged.
0: So another reason why I invited you here today, besides that you're really cool people with so much knowledge on on urbanism and futures, is that I wanted to discuss with you about your hopes and wishes for a podcast like Cities Reimagined. What do you think could be the contribution of Cities Reimagined? and What do you hope for for the podcast
1: yeah so my my expectations and hopes I would be to go really near or close examples of how people have come across opportunities or challenges related to like urban issues how they have dealt with them and if if you could also hear about their struggles like in an, in a really honest way i think that would help many people because one thing i realized when i was i uh, working as a researcher i which i've done for for 15 years is that a lot of a lot of knowledge production or the way we produce knowledge uh, is based on on black boxing uh, on like tidying away all the difficult parts or the, all the hurdles uh all the the cul-de-sacs i uh, and then you kind of tell you tell the story as as if you went from a to b where you you, you really didn't and i think that that can really be uh, discomforting for people who then try to do things for the first time, perhaps, because it is never from A to B. And if you don't know that other people struggle too, uh, that everything is much much messier uh, than you think it will be, then it's easy to give up. Uh, so I would I would love to to have some some good unboxing uh, of, of projects and processes.
0: Jonas, uh what would you expect from this uh, from the podcast?
2: Well, um, yes, I, I agree with Josephine actually <laughs> that's that's always good stories. That's good to hear. But I, I think moreover, hearing all these stories that we are about to hear, perhaps, hopefully, um, i'm I'm thinking again about the the kind of the, the the bubbling the the kind of the very in a way very living situation that in many cities uh, all around the world, well, there is a lot of experimentation going on by smaller activist neighborhood groups as well as sometimes, I mean, municipal district uh, regional even national actors being involved maybe i'm not sure but i think there are um and what we are seeing is that it is a kind of a messy urbanism going on at the moment and i don't think we should try to clean it up in any way but how can we rather learn from that and so i'm thinking about this podcast to be of extreme use for planners and policymakers to make sense of this and start being perhaps a bit more comfortable in it
1: yeah can can i just uh can i just uh connect to that because on a very very personal level i i so at formas we are currently working on developing our funding instruments uh to allow for more like experimentation and learning rather than like producing answers uh, immediately. So I am very keen on knowing more about how people experiment, what they have learned from that, and how we as, as a research and innovation funder can uh, maybe uproot some of the lawn uh, to create possibilities for a couple of more meadows.
0: Excellent. That's pretty high stakes for this one. So I hope that this uh, this podcast can deliver in, in, in pits and pieces. So the aim for me is to really tell tell the stories behind different kinds of experiments, but also just people working in this field um, with different aspects of urban life or contributing to reimagining cities and the way we live, the way cities look like, what are the little... Maybe, maybe small but also bigger puzzle pieces in this um in this image for or in this process to reimagine the future how we live. So I hope that this um that it will meet your expectations as well. And last question I have for you. Because it is so easy in this podcast to to be very serious and very theoretical. How can we make a podcast more fun? Because it should be fun at the end of the day for the policymakers, but also for for everybody else listening in who who doesn't have uh too much knowledge about uh urban urban matters so what is your suggestion how do we make it fun and being attractive
2: i'm not sure I'm, i think i'm gonna let joseph have the last word so i will just try to say don't don't try to make it fun that's no. usually not very funny
0: not funny okay just relax <laughs> do, do, be... what,
2: do what you usually do johannes yeah. and it will be rather funny
0: okay good I'm not sure if that is a good thing, but uh, uh, I will try to.
1: yeah, trust the trust the force. no, so i I think uh that building on or inviting people to tell stories and to tell stories together uh it it might not always be fun, but meeting people is always interesting i think uh rather than having these like abstract conversations that that people like i who have a background as a researcher tend to fall into uh making room for 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 jokes and metaphors examples uh mistakes even in the podcast right and uh, and and learn from well, there those there will be many there will be many <laughs> i but then i think at at the end of the day i as all human activities, this podcast is also relational, right? So it's not only up to you, Johannes, or the people you talk to, uh, to make this a fun and rewarding experience, but also the people listening need to take their responsibility in making this a worthwhile uh, experience. So, so stay with the trouble. Uh, even though you don't immediately get the relevance for you, If you just stay with it, I am sure that you will learn something.
0: That's great. Thank you so much. That was very nice last words. Um, Thank you for being on the show. I really enjoyed this. I really enjoyed talking to you, like always. Uh, Being in person or now via some kind of internet platform, I hope we have the chance to meet in person rather soon again. So uh, thank you for joining. Josephine, thank thank you so
1: thank you so much, Johannes. It's been a pleasure.
2: Yes, thanks, Johannes. This is really good so far.
0: So far, yeah, <laughs> I'm having good. fun.
2: Yeah, that's good. That was...
0: So this was my conversation with Jonas Bullund and Josephine Rangel, which I which was actually the first recording for Cities Reimagined, um, and I we recorded this back in I think it was beginning of July. And I just finished cutting this piece now in the end of September of 2003. So I learned a lot by recording this interview. Also how to hold the space in interviews. How to not go overboard with the length of the recordings. Because it will be a trouble down the road. If you want to find out more about uh, Josephine Rangel and Jonas Bullund, I leave some links in the show notes, also some links to their latest publications. and get in touch with them via LinkedIn if you want. If you like today's episode, subscribe to the channel to not miss any show in the future. And if you want to get a view on the background of Cities Reimagined and more insight into how this show is recorded and what I'm doing and, and so on, follow Cities Reimagined on Instagram. Also, please do get in touch with your feedback and any wishes and expectations for the podcast, either via social media, on my LinkedIn, or write me an email at johannes@anthropocene.city. At this was all for today, and I hope to catch you soon.